to hear from the Bible. The Bible reading is in this booklet called One Booklet. So if you haven't got this booklet, uh, you'll need this booklet so you can follow the Bible reading. So just raise your hand and Serena will come around and hand you a booklet. Keep your hands raised. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, week 8 of our sermon series. Uh, Ephesians 4 verses 17 to 32. Maybe Grant, do you want to just Grant, do you want to just grab some more booklets and help Serena? Anybody else need a booklet? Jared, do you want to read the Bible to us? So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just in Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Is anybody else saying ouch already from that Bible reading? Let me pray for us and then we're... Hear God speak. Lord, we want to thank you for your word, which is so rich and so practical and so relevant. Uh, Lord, it's often hard to hear, so I pray that you would clear our minds and clear our hearts of untruths and you would just feed us richly tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to, to imagine. Just, just switch on your mind and imagine this type of community. Imagine being part of a community where everybody spoke the truth to each other all the time. In every conversation, the words that came out of people's mouths were were just always true. No deception, no lying, no half-truths. When people spoke to you, you said, yep, I'm taking Matty's word. That would be a wonderful place to be, wouldn't it? Imagine being part of a community 
where people really did forgive one another. Can, can you imagine that? When, when, when you'd wronged somebody and, and you went to them and you said, I'm so sorry, I've done the wrong thing, I've hurt you. And, and they say to you, that's okay, I forgive you. And then they do forgive you and they relate to you as though they really have forgiven you. Can you, can you imagine being part of that community? Can you imagine being part of a community where it's marked by compassion and by kindness? Uh, when you see someone in need, uh, you don't just think about self. You don't just think about me and my needs. You think about them and, and you act and you speak in a way that meets that need because you're full of compassion for them. Can you imagine being part of a community where you really do speak out in words and in actions, you speak out against wrong and evil in our world. Part of a community where when we hear of people being verbally abused or emotionally abused or physically abused, we speak out against that. When you hear about slave traders and sex traders and sweatshop workers, we speak out against that because it's wrong. And we speak out and stand up for the oppressed and the marginalised. Can you imagine a part of a community where it's marked by generosity, so, so the poor don't get poorer and the rich don't get richer, but we're just really good at sharing what we've got. Can you, can you imagine being part of that? It would be wonderful to be part of that community. A, a kind, compassionate, forgiving, truthful community. And I hope you're asking, where can I find that? Where, where can I find that type of community? Where can I be part of that type of community? And, and the answer, of course, is, you tell me. Where, where can you find it? The church. Uh, that's what God's church is supposed to be like. That's what it's meant to be like to be part of God's church, where we do actually forgive each other, we are kind to each other, we are full of compassion, and we do speak the truth. Because that's how the Bible describes the body of Christ called the church. It's what we communicate in our church mission statement. It's on the screen, it's on your newsletter, it's on our notice board, living for Jesus, loving like Jesus. Uh, what we're saying there is that, is that we are a community of people who, who live our lives under the Lordship of Christ and we honour Jesus and we please Jesus and it's all about Jesus. And we love each other. Uh, we love each other within the church family. We love our community. We love our world like Jesus would love them. That kind of extravagant, selfless, sacrificial, other person-centred kind of love. Now look at it. Living for Jesus, loving like Jesus, that, that is not a statement about our beliefs, is it? It's a statement about our behaviour. It's not a statement about our, uh, the content, it's about our conduct. We're saying to the world, the way that we live, the way that we relate, the way that we walk, the way that we talk, uh, look at our behaviour, look at our conduct, and at this church you should see Jesus. Now, let's be honest, let's be real. The majority of people who are not part of a church family, they, they rarely read the Bible, they don't delve into doctrine, but they do look at our lives. 
And by that mission statement, we are saying to the watching world, uh, you can expect gossip and slander in the world, but, but not in this church. Uh, you can expect bitterness and anger and grudges in the world, in your workplace, but, but not in this church, because we're different here. We're a church that are all about living for Jesus and loving like Jesus, because we've got Jesus. And that statement, that mission statement, it is not just what we do on a Sunday evening, is it? What we're saying is that we're living for Jesus and loving like Jesus 24-7. Because when you've met Jesus, he impacts every area of your life. Because your belief must change your behaviour. Here's my big idea for tonight. God's church must live profoundly countercultural lives. God's church, God's people, must live profoundly countercultural lives. Did, did you spot the imperatives in our passage, verse 17? I, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord by the authority of Jesus that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Come on, church. That was your old way of life. You must no longer live like the rest of the world does. Or verse 25, uh, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Uh, Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal. Uh, Verse 29 literally says you must not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. You see that word must? These are commands. These are not nice thoughts on how to live. These are, these are not suggestions on how your life might be better. They're, they're the expectations that if you follow Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, this is how you're to live. We must live profoundly countercultural lives. Uh, but before we dive into the passage, let me, let me flag a massive danger in preaching this kind of passage. See, I could easily preach tonight and just give you a kind of a moralizing lecture. You know, you must do this and you mustn't do this. And you can do this and you can't do this. And that's just kind of laws and rules. and It's just legalism. And if I was just to preach a kind of moralizing lecture tonight, we'd fall into two basic camps. There'd be some people here who, who left way down and burdened and feeling guilty and feeling a failure and thinking, I can't do it. And there'll be other people who leave here tonight kind of like self-righteous and proud, a bit like the Pharisee, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm quite a good person, I've kept all the rules. And so we need to get the engine right. You know, the, the engine drives uh, the vehicle, the engine drives our conduct. Uh, this kind of behaviour, this kind of different life only comes from having the engine right, and the engine is Christ, isn't it? In the context of Ephesians, you've got to make sure you're in Christ that you've been saved by Christ. And if you are in Jesus, you have been redeemed, you have been forgiven, you do have the Spirit of God, and so therefore we're called to live different lives. But please make sure you get it right. You're in Christ first, and therefore you live different lives. I've got a friend who has adopted a little girl from Taiwan. Her name is Nina. Uh, They adopted her when she was one 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 year old. She now lives in a house in, in West Pimble. And because Nina now lives under their roof, there are certain house rules, certain things that she can do and certain things she can't do because she's now living under their roof and she's their daughter. 
Now, now imagine if Jane and Phil said, said to Nina, Nina, you must do this and you mustn't do this, otherwise you're not our daughter anymore. If you do this and if you don't do this, uh, then you can be our daughter. But if you don't do that, then you're not going to be our daughter anymore. Can you imagine living under that kind of house where you're constantly thinking, oh gosh, am I going to be their daughter anymore? She is their daughter. They, they have adopted her. And because she's their daughter and because they love her, they want her to live under their roof according to their rules. That's what we're talking about tonight. If you're in Christ, you are a child of God, you are a son of God, you are a daughter of God. He's not saying you earn your relationship with God. He's saying because you're a child of God, this is how you live. But he's pretty clear that we must live profoundly countercultural lives. He says, verse 17, don't live as the Gentiles do. That's the, the unbelievers do in the, the futility of their thinking. So, so their minds are all wrong. They're darkened in their understanding because they don't know God. They're ignorant, verse 18. That is, that is they, they know some facts, but they choose to ignore it. They, they have hard hearts. They are willfully stubborn. But I think verse 19 is probably the best description of our society, isn't it? Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality, to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. I can see exactly what our world is like. Increasingly godless, increasing any sense of right and wrong, lacking any moral sensitivity, appetites out of control. I read this week this wonderful quote. It says, our society today is addicted to addictions. We're addicted to addictions. And I reckon that is why our culture, our culture today is just so me-centred. That's why we lie. That's why we hold on to grudges. That's why we speak words of betrayal. I mean, look at our, look at our, our parliament. Look at our politics. Do you ever watch sort of Question Time? It's not about policies these days, is it? It's just about personal attacks. When our so-called leaders open their mouths, but both sides, I'm not going to any, any one side, but when they open their mouth, do you not think, is this true or is this just rhetoric? You just can't take their word anymore. In our world, people go for the latest thrill, they crave more and more satisfaction, and then they end up paying somebody else to listen to their problems. And Paul is saying, that is not you anymore. You've got a new mind. You've met Jesus. And because you belong to Jesus, don't be part of that. It's a classic sort of before and after. Verse 20, that is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in Christ. It's kind of like, anyone, anyone here watch The Biggest Loser? I love The Biggest Loser. I acknowledge that. Why do we love those shows? We love those shows because we like to see the, the, the total transformation. And it's not just about the weight loss, is it? It's actually about their lives are just totally different. They can now do things that they never could do before. The stuff they always wanted to do, they, they now can do. And it's almost like they've got a new personality, a new identity. They're a new person. That's the after and what Paul is saying here is that if you've met Christ, you've got a new you. 
So, so verse 22, you, you put off your old way of life. That was the old you. Uh, verse 24, you put on the new you. The new you, verse 24, is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the, the new you. That's a transformed you. Uh, and in between the two, verse 23, how do you do it? You've got a new mind, a new thinking, because you're now in Christ. We must live profoundly countercultural lives. Let me ask you two questions. Why and what? Why should we be different? Why should God's church be different? Why should God's church be a place full of truth and forgiveness and kindness and compassion? Why does it matter? Of course it matters because we're called to be a witness. Of course it matters because people see Jesus through us. You ever had those really awkward conversations with somebody you've sat next to at work for three or four years and, and they, suddenly dis- they suddenly discover you're a Christian? And they say things like, oh, I didn't know that. And you're thinking, gosh, I've sat next to you for three years. You've seen the way that I relate. You've seen the decisions that I've made. You've seen the way I speak. And you hadn't got a clue I was a Christian. That's awful, isn't it? It matters the way that we witness. I mean, the damage done when a church is no different from the world. In fact, sometimes a church is worse than the world, isn't it? But that's not the reason that Paul gives. The reason why we should be different, according to verse 27, is that there is a spiritual realm. The devil does exist. And we must not give him a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold, it says. The context here is anger. So anger within the church, not not the righteous anger, but the temper, the the boiling blood, that moment of disunity in the church, and and the, the devil grabs hold of it, and he says, that's my chance That's what I'm going to do. I'll I'll grab that and I'll destroy God's church. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of the spiritual battle that we're in? The devil doesn't want people to become Christians and so he makes our evangelism so hard. He doesn't want the word to go out so he makes preaching really hard. He doesn't want us, God's people, to live different lives. He doesn't want the church to live as united holy people. So what does he do? He grabs on relationships, fighting and factions and grudges and hostility. That will make the church a laughingstock. Have you ever thought about that? That when we're tempted to be unloving and unkind and angry and impatient, we're actually giving the devil a foothold. But the second reason why we're supposed to be different is the positive. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I love verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, the word grief is a, it's a personal word, isn't it? If you've lost someone that you love, if you've lost someone who's dear to you, you know what grief is like, don't you? Grief is this, this sadness, it's this darkness, it's this loneliness is this, this this pain that you feel when you've lost someone that you love that's grief and this verse tells me that the holy spirit of god who indwells each one of us who has bought us as a price the holy spirit who has sealed us for that final day uh, when he sees his church when he sees you when he sees me behaving just like the world with our lying and our slandering our lack of forgiveness he grieves he hurts He's saddened. He's in pain. 
Here's what Spurgeon said. He said, It's an inexpressible, delightful thought that the God who rules heaven and earth, the God who is the creator of all things, the infinite, the ever-blessed God, he would condescend to enter into such infinite relationships with his people like you and me. And so his divine mind may be affected by our actions. His great love for us makes possible his grief. Do you ever think like that? That your harsh words actually make the Spirit of God grieve? That your lack of forgiveness makes the Spirit of God grieve? God is heartbroken when his church is no different from his world. We must live profoundly countercultural lives. So what's that going to look like? Let's get really practical. Let's get really down-to-earth, nitty-gritty practical. In God's church, we must speak truth and not lies. He says, put off your lying, renew your mind and put on truth. There's no place for lying in God's church. God's church must be marked by honesty and integrity and in truthfulness. See that in verse 25? Each of you must put off falsehood. Get rid of it. And put on truth, honesty, integrity for your members of one body. I grew up in a house where where lying was just part of life. Not the big lies, just just the small lies, the white lies, the half-truths. And if you ever lived in that kind of house, it's just kind of, you're kind of living in this web, this tangled web of kind of who knows what and what did I say what to, and it's just ugly. And that is not God's church. God's church should be a place where we don't hide things and we don't deceive one another, we don't pretend, we keep our word, we're reliable, we're honest because we've put off falsehood and we're just speaking the truth to each other. Wouldn't that be a beautiful place to be? In God's church, any anger must be a righteous anger, not a losing of the temper. Look at verse 26. In your anger, don't sin. He's quoting from Psalm 4. In your anger do not sin and again I love that verse because he's saying anger is okay sometimes anger is permitted sometimes because anger can be righteous and anger can be holy but it must be different to the type of anger in verse 31 that you must get rid of see see, I'd argue that that in God's church we should actually be more angry more often that kind of righteous anger the holy anger now, we, we need more men and women like, like John Wesley, who was angry at his personal sin. He hated it. We need more men and women like William Wilberforce, who was angry at societal sin. So when he saw the, the slave traders, he was angry at that, and he fought for justice. We need more people like that, who will speak out against the sex traders and the, the refugees and the drug traders. And Don't we need more people like that? We need more people like Luther who would speak out against doctrinal sin and when the name of Christ was being maligned, he spoke out against that. See, church shouldn't be a place where we're apathetic. When you see the marginalised being trampled on and when you see the poor becoming poorer, we should be righteously angry. But let's be honest. If you're like me, most of our anger is rarely righteous, is it? 
Most of our anger is just that flying off the handle because of my impatience, because of my pride. Most of our anger is just us shouting to get things off our chest regardless of who we hurt or who we damage in the process. And you know, some of us just hold on to anger and we nurse it and we feed it and we we feel self-justified and we make some poor person, some poor man or woman, the focal point of all our hurt and we pour out our anger onto them and then we feel better. I love this quote by a guy called Frederick Buchner. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savour the last tooth and morsel, both the pain you're given and the pain you're giving back, in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself and the skeleton of the feast is you. Anger destroys you. Anger destroys you. And when the church is full of angry people, not, not righteous anger, but that blood-boiling anger, it grieves the Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody tells the story of he was doing a week-long mission and he was preaching his heart out night after night after night and he was seeing no fruit. No one was being saved. The night before the last meeting, he gathered together with the elders of the church and quite prophetically he said, is there any unforgiven sin in this place? Is there any pent-up anger? And the leader of the church stormed out of the room. He was an angry man who had been pounding the pulpit for many, many years. He came back to D.O. the following day and just thanked him for coming and asked for forgiveness. And Moody preached that night and, and hundreds were saved. It does affect our church, that kind of pent-up anger. In your anger, don't sin. And don't give the devil a foothold. In God's church, we don't steal, but we do good. I, I was going to skip over verse 28. I was thinking, stealing, you know, we don't steal any, anymore. This is written for the first century where there was no welfare system. Stealing isn't a problem today, is it? And then I read that in 2006, in the, in the US, stealing or theft cost the US economy $8 billion. People like you and me who steal... We pad our expense accounts, we fiddle our taxes, we borrow something from the office and we never return it. That's stealing. And God's church, we mustn't steal, but we must work and do something useful and then be generous. Now this is the one I find the hardest. In God's church, we must speak words that build other people up and not tear them down. Look at verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building other people up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. How I wish the word any wasn't there. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building other people up according to their needs. It's so, it's so countercultural, isn't it? He's saying when you speak, the words that come out of your mouth... You should only speak 
If the words that come out of your mouth are going to be beneficial to other people, not, not, not just for you. If you're going to speak words which are, are filthy and rotten and they run someone down, and they damage someone's reputation, if they're slanderous words, if they're unkind words, if they're hurtful words, then zip it. Say nothing. No unwholesome talk to come out of your mouths. You, you, know, the, you know the power of words, don't you? You know how powerful your words really are. You know that, so do I. I can remember words said to me years and years and years ago that have stuck with me and they pierced me and they shaped me. And I'm sure you can too. It is Proverbs chapter 12. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And he says, Church, watch your words. When you speak, if you speak, only speak words, verse 29, that are edifying for another person. They empower another person. They build them up. They equip them. They, they change them. Because it's beneficial to them, not to you. How are you going to do this? Think before you speak. Ask why you're saying it. Are you doing it to make yourself feel better or because it's good for them? You do know the damage caused in the church by a loose tongue, don't you? The conversations over, over supper that are full of gossip and slander or that cutting comment, they will destroy the church. Here's Tim's, Tim Keller's tongue test. He says, don't complain or grumble. Don't boast about anything. Don't gossip or report bad information about anybody. Don't run anybody down, even a little bit. Don't defend or excuse yourself and always affirm other people. How do you do that? You need a new mind. You need a new heart. You need a new tongue. You need Jesus. And, and church, if we're going to be profoundly countercultural, we must just be like Jesus. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness and all rage and all anger and all brawling and all slander and every form of malice. Get rid of it. Leave it on the garbage heap. I mean, I mean, can you imagine a church where you walk into a church and it's full of bitterness and full of fighting and full of anger and full of lying? Can, can you imagine that kind of church? Of course you can. That's what most churches are like, isn't it? Because most churches are not like what the Bible says. They're, they're just like the world. And I'm here tonight as your pastor to plead with you, to urge you to be different we are different. We do have Jesus. We have the Spirit of God living us. So get rid of it. Take off your dirty, ugly clothes marked by bitterness and rage and anger. I know it's hard. Get rid of it. Leave it somewhere. Transform your mind and be like Jesus. Be kind. Be compassionate. And forgive each other just as in Christ Jesus, God forgave you. Can you imagine being that kind of type of community? Can you imagine being part of a community where we spoke the truth, our anger was righteous, it was marked by kindness, compassion, 
and forgiveness. I hope you can imagine that. Because that's what this church should be like. That's what you should be like. That's what I should be like. That's what we should be like. Because we're living for Jesus and we're loving like Jesus, aren't we? Let me pray. I'm going to give you a moment by yourself just to think through some of these hard truths, our our words, our truthfulness, our anger, our work, our attitudes. Just spend time with your God by yourself. Father, we long to be the church that you saw in your heart. We long to be the church marked by kindness and compassion and forgiveness, by truthfulness, truthfulness and unconditional love. Please make us that kind of church. In Jesus' name.